0: And so today, at last, we come to the conclusion of our studies in Genesis with chapter 50. Now, I'm going to concentrate on verses 14 to 21, but let me just tell you that leading up to those verses, Joseph fulfills the promise he made to his father, Jacob Israel, by burying his embalmed body in Canaan, or having it done uh, with that of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And so we pick it up at verse 14, Genesis chapter 50, verse 14. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who went up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. It, actually, it it says actually there, More accurately, it's he will fully repay us. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants." Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I am, or excuse me, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. And now therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones, and he comforted them And spoke kindly to them. I'm just going to go ahead and finish the reading because I'm going to refer to the latter verses here as we get into the message. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. And so Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. There ends the reading of God's infallible and errant word. The title of today's message, The Undeserving. Dr. R.J. Rustini once wrote that the message of the Bible, and specifically the message of Genesis, is that there can be no separation of history and theology. Now, that's a statement that could be said at the very beginning of a study of Genesis. I'm saying it also at the conclusion of our study through Genesis. Dr. Rustini went on to recall that he had met a doctor some years before who said that when he was in medical school... It was grounds for getting yourself kicked out if you put forth the idea that stomach ulcers could be caused by stress. He said, of course, now we know very well that there is a connection between mental stress and physical problems. See, because history is not meaningless, but God-ordained, history has a purpose and it inescapably has a theological meaning. Any attempt to understand history apart from God is an exercise in futility. Genesis is the starting point of sound doctrine and theology because it declares God to be the creator and therefore the determiner of all things. Whatever your starting point is, my friends, that will determine everything else that radiates out from the starting point. The restoration of a strong faith begins with the recognition of the central importance of Genesis to theology and to everything else for that matter. Because the message of Genesis is God's message about his purpose in creation, about who he is, who humanity are, how we got where we are today, and everything else that unfolds from there. If your starting point is something like uh, humanism or scientific dialectical evolutionism, or something like that, you're going to come up with a radically different understanding about, even if there is a God, about what human beings are and where we go from here. So now, with this chapter, we not only conclude the study in Genesis, but we also arrive at a turning point, a crossroads, because as we read, Jacob, Israel, has died. He's been laid to rest with his fathers in Canaan, and now... Joseph and his brothers are left only with themselves and their families. Now, Joseph's 11 brothers have maybe at various points, either individually or with a few of them, expressed their regret for the way that they mistreated him many, many years earlier. But they've not really told him to his face. And they've never personally asked his pardon and forgiveness. Now, of course, Joseph, being a man of faith and grace, he had long ago forgiven them but they weren't necessarily aware of that. But now they're becoming quite worried, indeed, that Joseph may exact revenge from them for the earlier injustice done to them. That's why they said, maybe now he's going to fully repay us. The focus of the study, as I said, is those verses in 14 really through 26, because with these words, we are presented with a marvelous example of Christ-like faith and love the expressions of Joseph in response to his brothers, it it demonstrates a trust in God that really brings together, it unites the older and new covenants. Not only that, they also set an example for us on on how we should model our lives. So then, let us consider three things in particular. They may be other things, but I'm going to mention these three. In Joseph's response to what his brothers have said to him, that I think we would all do well to practice in our lives. Now, the first thing I'm going to mention then is that we should leave the writing of wrongs to God. And maybe I should qualify that, the the writing of personal wrongs. We're not talking here about, let's say, um, somebody breaks into your house while you're at the store and kills your dog. Um, You know, maybe that, that was a personal friend who did that. It's hard to imagine a personal friend doing it. But in other words, if there's a violation of God's law... Uh, we don't necessarily leave the writing of that wrong to God in some long metaphysical sense. We're, you know, we have civil laws against breaking God's law, or at least we should. Now, we're talking about interpersonal conflicts, as in this case, brother and brother. That, the, the, the truth of this is abundantly demonstrated in verse 19. The brothers have come to Joseph. They're groveling and they're begging and pleading for mercy, and they offer themselves as slaves. That's what it means Behold, we are your servants. That's just not a greeting. They're literally saying, we will be your slaves in exchange for your forgiveness and goodwill. And notice, what does Joseph say in response? It's verse 19. Do not be afraid. And he asks this question rhetorically, am I in the place of God? In other words, is it for me to put myself in God's place? Am I God that I should punish you? See, Joseph knew something about the power and the authority of God Almighty. And he knew even more, perhaps, about his own limitations as a man. He knew that vengeance and the seeking of revenge is not proper for one man against another, especially Christian brothers and sisters. Vengeance was not his prerogative, but God's. And he had no intention of playing God. Many years ago, the late President John Kennedy, I don't even know if he was president when, this, when he did this interview, but um, in that interview, in an interview that he did, he used a phrase that was quite popular among the Irish population of Boston, where the Kennedys, you know, had some roots, especially in Irish politics of the city of Boston, and that's a phrase that I'm sure most of us have heard before. You've seen it perhaps, not lately, but on bumper stickers, T-shirts, it's this. Don't get mad, get even. Don't get mad, get even. Sadly, that is the attitude of too many of us today, even those who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus taught us that we should not seek personal revenge because of wrongs done to us. Paul echoes that truth where he writes in Romans 12:19, beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but give place to wrath, for it is written vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5:15, I'm reading this from the Christian Standard Bible translation. He says, see to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Isn't it remarkable that Joseph precisely demonstrates that kind of attitude toward his brothers? I mean, it ought to raise a question in our minds about how Joseph was able to live a life of faith and trust in the Lord, even though he'd never read or heard the writings of Paul. Well, the answer to what might seem to be a hard question or the solution to the mystery is really quite simple. The grace of God, the law of God, the will of God is essentially the same in both the Older and New Testaments. And what Paul wrote to the churches was simply a restatement of the basic rules of dealing with personal conflicts that God had laid down among his people thousands of years earlier. God's truth, God's word, God's law does not change. And it doesn't change because he doesn't change. And I am sad to have to add to this, I regret having to say, Human nature doesn't change either. And that is why a rule laid down by God Almighty thousands of years ago still applies today. You'll hear people sometimes, even supposedly well-meaning Christians, will be very dismissive of the abiding validity of the law of God. And they'll say, well, you know, uh, we we should obey the the, the law of love that Christ taught us as if there's a separation from what Christ taught in the New Testament and what he taught in the Older Testament. But they say, you know, all these rules and regulations and such as we see in in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and all this stuff in the Older Testament, that was given to a nomadic, wandering people who lived sort of a semi-primitive life. And those kind of rules really don't apply to a modern society like ours. Uh, Nonsense. God knows us better than we know ourselves. For us a personal vendetta in this particular area in which we're talking about. We could name a thousand other areas where people today are no different than they were 3,000 years ago. But in terms of a personal vendetta of vengeance against some perceived wrong done to us, that is not permitted by the Lord. And the attitude of personal revenge, you see, it darkens our minds and it breeds in us despicable behavior. It's no coincidence that... Much of the entertainment today of a certain genre, and it's very popular, is based on the idea of personal revenge or collective revenge. You see, pursuing that breeds the kind of behavior that will lead a person to go to their place of employment and kill a bunch of people in a fit of rage. Christ calls us to a higher life than that. Now, maybe you think, well, I would never do such a thing as go kill a bunch of people that I might be angry against. Well, let's hopefully... Let's hope that's true. But what about the murder and the killing that we commit every day with our mouths? What about the revenge that we seek every week by the vengeful thoughts in our minds? Christ taught us, indeed he showed us, that forgiveness is the better way. So then that's the first point. We should leave the setting of things to right with God. Secondly, we should see the hand of God at work even when bad things happen to us or generally. See, Joseph has not ignored what those men did to him. But he refused to question God's predestinating authority. But he also doesn't minimize what they did. And in verse 20, we have, I think, one of the really marvelous statements about trust and faith in God and his providential workings in the world ever spoken by anyone, anywhere. Let me give it to you from the New Jerusalem Bible. You've already heard it from the New King James. James. He says to them, the evil that you plan to do to me has, by God's design, been turned to good, to bring about the present result, the survival of numerous people. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about as it is this day. You know, in an earlier discussion with his brothers, he'd already said something similar to that to them. Back in chapter 45 and verse 5, he said, But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. In other words, he's talking about them having sold him into slavery. For God sent me before you to preserve life. See, if our faith and trust in the Lord is what it should be, we can see that all the bad and undesirable things that have come our way in life were but very small pieces of a much larger puzzle. And that larger puzzle is our lives as our Heavenly Father is putting it together according to His will and purpose. Reminds me of something I read some years ago by a British writer, a man named T.H. White. And he once wrote about an episode from his own childhood. And I think it brings this truth home in a special way. It seems that when he was a boy, his father handmade. Apparently, he was quite a a craftsman. He handmade, he built a wooden castle, like, you know, a medieval, you know, English castle. And it was large enough for a child or even a small adult to get inside of it. And his father constructed this thing with, you know, the the towers on on all the four sides of the castle. And they had real pistol barrels in in the slots of the towers, like they might have had five or 600 years earlier. Now, he he did that because on the boy's birthday, he wanted to fire off a salute in his honor. Well, T.H. White, the author, said that as a boy, he really didn't understand what the gun turrets were for. And so when his father insisted that he stand in front of that castle on his birthday to receive the salute, he started crying because he thought his father intended to shoot him. I wonder how many times have we misinterpreted the ambiguities and apparent difficulties in our lives. And we thought that the world as we knew it personally was at an end, only to find that the Lord had something far better in mind to come from it. How much better it would be if we would but trust the Lord during our trials and our difficulties. Okay, look, I'll be the first to agree. That's easier said than done. So maybe we need to remind ourselves of the words of Paul, who spoke very much, as did Joseph here. And let's be reminded that Paul, too, was a man who had endured a lifetime of hardship and persecution and betrayal. And the very things that he mentions in these verses from Romans 8, which we heard some of it earlier in our New Testament reading, these very things he knew firsthand what he was talking about. He says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? In all of these things, he said, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, any pagan would read that list and say, in all those things, we are dead as a doornail. In all those things, we are in misery, but not Paul, not Joseph. We are more than conquerors, even in the midst of these things. Now, that's not to say that we should just take a cavalier who gives a rip attitude when terrible things befall us or our friends, and it's not to say that we should not be concerned when some dire emergency may come our way, but it is to say that the child of God should not be paralyzed with fear about such things. Because if we truly believe that God is who he says he is, then we must know that Joseph was right and so was Paul. Now, I want to circle back over to these verses 24 to 26 that we read earlier uh, about Joseph dying and him being embalmed and put in a coffin in Egypt and him exacting a promise from his brothers that they would carry his body to the promised land to be buried with his father's. Now, in that text, he says, it says his brethren, and that would have included his brothers and maybe even their children, their boys. And he tells them also at that time that, that somehow God would surely take them back to the promised land. Now, we need to recall when he's telling them that, that they are there at the good graces of the Pharaoh. And what the Pharaoh gave, in this case, permission to live in the, that part of Egypt called Goshen, only the Pharaoh could take away. And he's telling them this because we know many, many years later there will be a generation in Egypt that knew not Joseph and there will be a different Pharaoh and he will not be the least bit interested or inclined to let the Israelites go back to the promised land. And that meant that their permission to go, to leave Egypt was only going to come from Almighty God. But also in these verses, he makes them promise to keep his embalmed body until the time of their exodus. And we know from Exodus chapter 13 verse 19 that when Moses and the Israelites left Egypt, they took Joseph's body in that coffin when they left and returned his remains to the land of Canaan. Another example of all these things that we've said. God setting things to right, uh, trusting God even in difficult circumstances. Well, the third and final thing that we want to mention from these verses And in some ways, this is probably the most challenging, and that is that we should do good to those whom we've forgiven. Now, you talk about something that's easier said than done. I mean, for most of us, it's hard enough just to forgive the wrongs that other people have done to us. Leave alone, do something good for them in return. And yet, that is the example that Joseph set for us in verse 21. He says to his brothers, these men who had so horribly mistreated him, Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. That was how Joseph repaid the evil and betrayal that those men had done to him. He forgave them and then he promised to take care of them and their families. Notice that he's emphatic. I will do this. He will provide for them. So this isn't just, well, look, don't worry, you know, you did some bad things back there years ago. It's all gone now, water over the bridge. Let's just let bygones be bygones. No, he's putting his forgiveness into action. He is both saying something and he is doing something. And I wonder today if his words and his deeds have reminded you of anything as you heard about it, as you read about it here. It ought to. It ought to remind us of what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. Friends, some of the most remarkable examples of Christ-like love come from times of great trial and difficulty. Many years ago, I read a book published, I think it's still in print from the Banner of Truth, called The Korean Pentecost. And it was about the, uh, the flourishing of Protestant and especially Reformed Christianity in Korea, well before the Korean War, and then the suffering of the Christians who were persecuted by the communists that led up to the Korean conflict, and even still today, I'm sure, in North Korea. Well, from that time, and during the era of the Korean War, There was a story about a Korean man who was a Christian who had been taken captive by the communist forces of North Korea. And they put him on trial, you know, a fake mock trial, and they sentenced him to die before a firing squad. But then, just before the, uh, the firing squad was to pull the trigger on their rifles, the communist officer in charge of the execution learned that the Korean Christian man who was being executed had been the headmaster of a Christian orphanage. So the officer stopped the execution. And instead of killing that man, he forced that Christian man to watch as his 19-year-old son was shot to death in his place. Sometime later, that communist officer was captured by U.S. and allied forces, and he himself was condemned to die. But something very unusual happened. Just before his execution... That Christian orphanage headmaster, whose son had been murdered by this man, he made an, an emotional plea to the officer in charge of the communist guy's execution, and he asked if they would release him into his the Christian man's custody. Well, his request was granted. I don't know if they thought he was they were gonna, he was, the, the Christian man was going to take him home and beat him up for an hour or two before he himself killed him. I don't know what they thought, but that's not at all what happened. Eventually, that hardened. Communist murderer was saved by the grace of God and converted to Christ. He eventually became a pastor. I think that most of us, when we hear a story like that, we automatically think, wow, I sure couldn't do that. I just could not do what that Korean Christian man did. But then we need to remember, that man did not do it out of his own strength. The forgiveness that he showed was the outpouring of the love of God in his heart and soul. See, the reason why God shows his mercy to you and me is for the very purpose of our letting that same mercy flow out from us to other people, especially to the undeserving. Let us pray.